Good morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 26, verse 57 through chapter 27, verse 14. We've been working through Matthew now for over a year, and uh, we're, we're coming to the end, actually. We should be finished up by the end of November. Before we read God's word, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we, we know that your word is truth, and we long to hear from you this morning. We pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would open our ears and open our minds and open our hearts, that we would hear and believe and receive the things that are written in your word, that we would be changed by them, that we would be transformed as we're drawn closer to you through your son, Jesus, and as we are conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified in us. Uh, Bless this time, Father. Bless this time to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and says, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. When he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with him the bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. This then was fulfilled what has been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Well, I don't know about you, but I hate to be misunderstood. There's something about trying to get people to understand. I I want people to understand uh, the the nuances even of what I believe. I don't want people to think poorly of me because of a confusion over what I believe, right? I'm, I'm happy for someone to disagree with me as long as they understand what they disagree with and they're not just disagreeing with a misunderstanding. Why? Why must I be understood? Uh, Why do we want people to understand us, to know where we're coming from? There may be lots of reasons, and and I certainly don't want to oversimplify, but I know my own heart, a little, And I know that seeking to be understood is often an attempt at self-justification. I want to prove myself. And if you only understood me, then, then, then you would accept me. Or if you only understood me, then you would see that I'm right. And this desire to prove myself, it, it often comes right from a deeper belief, a deeper knowledge that there's actually something wrong with me. And I try to prove that I'm right because I hear this voice deep down that there's something wrong and and I'm driven to try to compensate, to prove to you that I'm better than I think I am. That maybe if I can get your approval, I can silence that voice deep inside. It's interesting in our text this morning that Jesus doesn't have this problem. Jesus is right all the time. And Jesus doesn't mind being misunderstood, even misrepresented. He doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't try to explain himself, but he remains silent before his accusers. We're going to look at the reality of accusations this morning. And here's the question to think about as we go. The question that each of us needs to ask is, is what are the accusations What are the accusations that you hear when no one else is around? Uh, When you're left alone with your own thoughts, right? What what condemning words come to your mind? Maybe you sit alone at night and you think, oh, I'm just just a failure. 
I've failed as a spouse, I've failed as a parent, I've failed as a student or failed as an employee. Or maybe there's some recurring sin in your life and when you have time to think about it, right, that sin weighs upon your soul. And you think, well, if I were really a Christian, right, I would be done with this by now. Why am I still struggling? Or maybe there's simply the thought that God couldn't really love me, right? God couldn't possibly forgive me. Or maybe it's something else, right? I I don't know. That's why you need to ask yourself the question, right? Uh, When you're alone with your thoughts, what, what accusations do you hear? What weighs upon your soul? Our text this morning is about accusations of one kind or another, some true, some false. And we'll look at it under, under the following four heads. You can see it in your bulletin on the back. There's an outline there. We'll look at Satan's lies, Jesus' silence, Peter's tears, and Judas's despair. First, we'll start with the lies. Jesus has been arrested. Uh, verse 57, uh, those who seized him took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, And uh, the whole Sanhedrin, that's the whole Jewish council, had been gathered together. The scribes and the elders and the chief priests are all there. And we're told in verse 59 uh, that the, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Now, it's kind of amazing to me that the chief priests are those who are leading God's people and are seeking false testimony against Jesus. It's particularly amazing, right? Because the ninth commandment, you may remember the ninth commandment, said is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, it doesn't say, as we commonly summarize the ninth commandment, it doesn't say, you shall not lie. I mean, that's true. You, you shouldn't lie. Uh, but the ninth commandment is put in, a, in particular terms. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God is concerned with the name, with the reputation of your neighbor. The chief priests or the the holy people, the the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they completely ignore God's concern because their concern is to get rid of Jesus. Uh, They don't want the truth. They just want an accusation that will stick. Apparently, they find many false witnesses, according to verse 60, Uh, But they know that it takes two witnesses for an accusation to stick and takes a while before they can find two false witnesses who come forward and actually agree. Finally, some come forward with a charge in verse 61. Now, according to the the Bible, uh, Satan is actually the liar and the father of lies and the accuser of the brethren. Um, Satan's not a a little red guy with horns and a pitchfork, uh, but he's a real spiritual being who seeks to deceive and to accuse and to lead people away from the truth and away from their father. And Satan's very first lie was his first accusation. Back in the garden, you may remember, God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He commands them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, if you eat of it, you will die. And uh, Satan comes to Eve and she says, uh, he says, Uh, you will not die. Rather, God is holding back on you. He knows that if you eat of this tree, you will become like him. And God doesn't want that, Satan is implying, right? He's holding out on you. He doesn't love you. And Satan is still, here in our passage, using lies, accusations, false testimony to lead people away from God. 
Here, instead of lying about the Father, though they are lying about the Father's Messiah. In fact, Jesus in the Gospel of John at one point says to the religious leaders, you are sons of your father, the devil, because you do the things that your father does. And that's what they're doing here in this passage. And notice what the lie is. Two false witnesses finally come forward and they say in verse 61, they say, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And what's interesting about that accusation is how much of it is true. Uh, Jesus did say in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, John tells us that Jesus is speaking about the temple of his body. But you can imagine how many people might have misunderstood Jesus, right? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's very similar to, I am able to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Similar, but not quite the same. See, Satan often deals in half-truths. Uh, Because half-truths in the end end up being lies because they mislead, they deceive. And so Satan is a master at taking the truth and twisting it, tweaking it just enough so that it becomes a lie. Well, just as Satan didn't want Adam and Eve to live for God in the beginning, Satan doesn't want us to believe in Jesus. And so he fills the world with these half-truths about Christ, really too many to go into right now. The only way to know Christ or to is to pursue Christ with all of our hearts, to ask the Spirit for guidance, to immerse yourself in God's Word, which is truth, so that the lies and the half-truths of Satan will appear for what they really are. But what I want us to focus on this morning is that Satan's lie right here comes in the form of an accusation. I asked you just a moment ago, right, when you're alone, what, with your thoughts, what accusations do you hear You know, some of those may come from your own heart, your own thoughts. Some may come from the people around you. Some may come from the evil one himself. The question is, what do you do? What do you do with those accusations when accusations arise? How do you respond? What is your knee-jerk reaction? We see actually three different responses in our text. We see Jesus' silence, Peter's tears, and Judas' despair. That's what we're going to look at one at a time. Three different ways we respond, we react to accusations. Well, Jesus is accused, and immediately the high priest stands up, and he says, have you no answer to make? Jesus, in verse 63, remains silent. We see this again in in Matthew 27, when Jesus is before the civil ruler, Pontius Pilate. Jesus is accused, but he gives no answer. There, Pilate responds in in chapter 27, verse 13. Pilate says, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Jesus, again, gives no answer. Not even to a single charge, Matthew says in verse 14, so that the governor was greatly amazed. What's so amazing about Jesus' silence? Well, think about it this way. If you were charged with a crime that was punishable by death, How would you respond? Well, you would do what we would all do, right? You would argue for your innocence. Or, I mean, if you knew the case against you was solid, maybe you would simply plead for mercy. But whatever the case, you would not be silent, right? You would be loud and pleading and persistent and begging to be let go. 
you know, I, I mentioned a moment ago our, our desire to be understood and, and how that often comes from a desire to justify ourselves, to prove that we're in the right, and that that desire to prove that we're in the right comes from this voice often that we hear deep down which says that we're in the wrong. Well, Jesus doesn't have that problem. He doesn't have that problem because from top to bottom, Jesus is in the right. He knows who he is. He he knows his standing before the Father. He knows his own rightness and, and righteousness. He knows where he belongs in the world. Uh, Jesus knows his father's acceptance. Uh, twice in the Gospel of Matthew, he hears the father's voice say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus doesn't feel the need to justify himself before these men. Eventually, the high priest adjures him, right? He's trying to bind Jesus by an oath uh, to respond. He says, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Finally, Jesus speaks up. He says, you have said so. We saw that two weeks ago uh, with Jesus' response to Judas, that this is a way of affirming uh, what the questioner is saying. Jesus doesn't answer the accusations of the liars, but he does answer the question of the high priest, and maybe it's because in, in his official role, the high priest has the right to ask that question. Maybe it's because the high priest put Jesus under an oath to God to testify. Whatever the case, Jesus answers. And he even goes on in verse 64 to say, well, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, Jesus is referring there to a vision from the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees the Son of Man coming on the clouds, coming to God, the Ancient of Days, and receiving the kingdom. And Jesus is saying that He is that Son of Man who will receive the kingdom from His Father. And that though he is about to die in weakness, he's going to be raised in power and he's going to ascend to the Father's right hand and be seated there as king. The high priest tears his robes, charges Jesus with blasphemy. Apparently the claim to be the figure in Daniel 7 went too far. It seems that Caiaphas takes this together with Jesus' admission to be the Christ and the Son of God to be tantamount to a claim to deity. So for this claim to deity, Jesus is condemned. He deserves death, they all say. And they spit on him and strike him and slap him and mock him. Jesus is being condemned for claiming to be God. How tragically ironic. And something similar happens later. Pilate, the Roman governor, asks Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. And Jesus answers, you have said so. Acknowledging that Pilate is correct. And this is eventually the charge that sticks for the Roman governor, right? Because this is the charge that has political weight to it. Jesus claims to be king of the Jews. That's a threat to the Roman government. Of course, those claims are really only chargeable if they're not true. See, the claim to be God is only a chargeable offense if you're not God. The claim to be uh, the king of the Jews is only a problem if you're threatening the real king of the Jews. But Jesus is God and he is the real king. And so he's condemned on half-truths. Yes, he did claim those things. That's true. But he claimed those things because he was those things. So Satan, again, uses half-truths to condemn God's Messiah. But really, he doesn't undermine God's plan in doing that, but he undermines his own. Because by securing the condemnation of Jesus, 
He secures the vindication of every one of us. Jesus is condemned for claiming to be God and king. For whom is that a crime? Well, for you and me, that's a crime. For Adam and Eve in the garden who sought to be like God, that's a crime. For you and me, every day when we pretend that the world revolves around us, when we pretend that our word is sovereign, when we pretend that our will is law, we are the ones who blaspheme. Uh, We are the ones who claim to be God when we're not. We are the ones who seek to usurp God's true kingship. But Jesus is the one who dies for those sins. Falsely accused, Jesus bears the punishment for a crime he didn't commit. He bears the punishment for our crimes, for our blasphemy, for our cosmic treason. And what does Jesus do when he's falsely accused? Like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah tells us. He took the blame for us. He allowed the false accusations to stick because that is what he came to do. He came to identify with us in our sin in order to bear sin, to bear guilt, and to bear death for us so that those same accusations might never stick to us again. Jesus died as a blasphemer so that you and me, blasphemers, might never die. Here's the question I want us to think about, though. Okay, I understand what Jesus did. I understand he bore the accusation for me. He bore God's wrath in my place. How does that affect the way we deal with accusations? How does that affect uh, what we do? How does Jesus being falsely accused for us affect how we respond to the silent inner voice that accuses us day and night? Or how does it affect the way we respond when other people accuse us of doing wrong? You know, the most common uh, response to accusations, of course, is to get angry. It's to protest your innocence. Uh, That's what the high priest and Pilate expected Jesus to do. But Jesus' response was silence, allowing the charges to stand. We see two more responses to the accuser in these verses. We see the responses of Peter and Judas. Think about Peter. Peter loved Jesus. He was ready to fight. He was ready to die. He was confused by Jesus' actions, by Jesus' words, put away your sword. But after Peter runs, he follows. As Jesus is being taken to the house of Caiaphas for trial, uh, verse 58 tells us, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Peter follows Jesus because he loves him. Peter wants to see how this is all going to turn out. He goes into the very courtyard of the high priest and he sits with the guards. Maybe some of the same people who had just arrested Jesus. And a servant girl comes to him, and verse 69, she says, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. Not really sure why she says this. Uh, Is it an accusation? Is it a mere observation? Uh, The mob didn't attempt to arrest anyone but Jesus in the garden. So is there a real threat here? Maybe, maybe not. But really, her motive isn't the important one. Look at Peter's response in verse 70. But he, Peter, denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. I don't have any clue what you're talking about. That's basically what he says. 
It's kind of a soft denial at first, at least here. His, his words really just mean that he doesn't know what she is saying. I don't, I don't know what you're saying. But Peter's denial doesn't end there, does it? Uh, he goes out to the entrance. Uh, another servant girl sees him and says to those around him, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Then again in verse 72, he denied it, but this time with an oath, saying, not I don't know what you're talking about, but I do not know the man. Peter's denial gets stronger, and as Jesus spoke under oath just a few moments ago, securing his condemnation as a blasphemer, so now Peter speaks under oath, securing his safety and security as not being identified with Jesus. I do not know the man, he says. Peter's not willing to identify himself with Jesus. Maybe he's afraid for his life. Uh, maybe he's just confused at the moment about what's going on and who Jesus is and why he would be willing to be arrested. Maybe he's not willing to identify with Jesus, who's so willing to allow himself to be misunderstood in this way. You know, sometimes that's our motive, right, for not identifying with Jesus and the church. Um, there are so many misunderstandings out there, aren't there? And, and I, I'm sure I'm happy to be identified with Jesus if people understand what that means. But if people have misunderstandings, well, it's, it's best just not to tell them that I'm a Christian because they may get the wrong idea. Well, a short time later, some other bystanders say to Peter in verse 73, they say, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Their logic is a bit flawed. Um, just because he's from Galilee doesn't mean he's a follower of Jesus. In fact, if you remember when Jesus went home, the people rejected him in a majority. Uh, but the logic of crowds is often kind of flawed and prejudiced. So Peter nevertheless answers them. In verse 74, he says, I, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Why does Peter weep? He weeps because he loves Jesus. And he knows his sin. He just denied the one he loves. His heart is broken. He feels his guilt Peter is repentant. He, he's sorrowful for what he has done. And, but Peter had been with Jesus. He, he didn't understand everything he heard over the past three years, but he, he knows there is forgiveness. Son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Peter heard Jesus himself say those words. He knows that Jesus is gracious. And so he's free to weep. He's free to mourn over his sin. We have a distinctly different picture with Judas, don't we? And Judas too sins against his master, but his sin does not end in weeping. Chapter 27, verse 1, we're told when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. You see, they, they have to make the trial official. Uh, trials uh, apparently conducted at night were not official. They didn't count. And so they gather again in the morning for a second trial, so to speak, to, to make the judgment official and to lead Jesus to Pilate. 
Peter, of course, must not be the only one who's watching to see the end because Judas sees that Jesus is condemned. We're told in verse 3 that Judas changes his mind. Interestingly, the, the, the Greek word that's normally uh, used or that most obviously means a change of mind is the Greek word metanoia, which is also the Greek word for repentance. And Matthew specifically avoids using that word uh, here, it seems, and he uses a different word for change of mind because Judas doesn't repent. But he does realize that he was wrong. And as a result, Judas brings the 30 pieces of silver back. He says to the religious leaders in verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas is confessing his sin to religious leaders. He's seeking to make amends by returning the coins. And they basically shrug him off. Well, what is this to us, right? See to it yourself. Of course, it, it should have been everything to them. Because if Judas had betrayed an innocent man, then they have condemned an innocent man but their consciences seem pretty much untroubled. So Judas throws down the money, he leaves the temple, and he goes out and he hangs himself. When Peter feels the weight of his sin, when he hears the accusation, right, that you've denied Jesus, you've denied your master, you've denied the one you love, you've denied the one who loves you, he wept. He knew the accusation was true, he couldn't deny it. He was broken, but not despairing. He knew of grace. He knew of forgiveness. And so he wept, bitterly wept over his sin. But not so Judas. He realizes his wrong. He hears the accusing voice. But does he weep? No. He seeks to make amends, right? He tries to, to cover over his sin. He returns the money. He confesses his sin to the high priest. He has betrayed innocent blood. See, when Judas hears the voice, you're a betrayer, Judas. You caused an innocent man to die, Judas. Right? He was your friend, Judas. You're a scoundrel, a murderer, a liar. And Judas hears those words and he despairs. He couldn't take the voice of the accuser. He couldn't take the weight of his guilt. And so he, he silences the voice of the accuser in his own way by taking his own life. What's different between Peter and Judas? Both betray Jesus in a sense. Both deny him. Neither rightly understands Jesus' mission. Peter, on some level, gets grace, and Judas doesn't. You know, lots of people feel regrets. Lots of people feel the weight of guilt. But, but what do you do with that? Or, or to put things differently, uh, Jesus said in John 5 that we all have one accuser, Moses. Jesus is saying it's the law of God that accuses us. We each fall short of God's standard, His perfection, His glory. Uh, none of us lives up, so the law accuses us. Satan then can rightly say to each one of us, uh, you have fallen short, you are not worthy, uh, you're a sinner, you deserve punishment. That's true of every one of us in this room. And there is coming a day, the Bible tells us, when we will stand before God's throne of judgment and we will all have fallen short of that law. When you're alone with your thoughts, right, what accusations do you hear? What comes to your mind? And when, the, when you hear the voice of the accuser, what do you do? You know, we don't have the option of Jesus, right? We, he, he could remain silent because 
he had no guilt. He had no shame. And though outer voices condemned him, he had no inner voice condemning him. No, no, his conscience wasn't pricked because he had no sin. We don't have that option because when people accuse us or when Satan accuses us, we have this inner voice that agrees. Maybe not in the specifics, but we know that we've fallen short. You could just deny it, right? When we hear accusations from others or from our own hearts, we can just protest that everything's fine, right? Try to convince others, try to convince ourselves that we're better than we know that we are. The problem is, of course, there's always some truth, isn't there, in accusations. Um, you know, I, I'm not a, as good a father as I could be, or I'm not as, as faithful a pastor as I should be. I'm, I'm a horrible friend most of the time, right? So you can make excuses, right? Okay, I can't deny it, but I can make excuses for those things. But those excuses never stand, right? I mean, we're each held accountable to God for our choices. He knows our knowledge. He knows our circumstances. We're each accountable for how we acted with what we know in the places we find ourselves. Well, we could just throw up our hands in despair like Judas. It's maybe logical. Um, if you only know the law, if you only know condemnation, if you only hear the accusations, if you despair of forgiveness, if you despair of the, that voice ever being silenced, you could simply try to drown it out you know, with, with pain or pleasure or busyness or whatever, right? Just try, to, just try to numb yourself to those thoughts. But there's a better way. Uh, there's a better way. You don't need to despair, right? You don't need to try to drown it out. You, you can mourn over your sin and turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Jesus came to silence the voice of the accuser by being accused in our place. When you hear the accusing voice, you can acknowledge it. You're right. I'm pretty bad. In fact, I'm a lot worse than you even know. You have no idea how bad my heart is. But Jesus bore the accusing voice for me. He bore my sin, my punishment, my guilt, my shame. It's true that I'm that bad and worse. But Jesus took the blame for my sin. And so I stand blameless before the Father. See, when you see your sin, weep over it. Mourn over it. Hate it, but despair not. Because Jesus has silenced the accuser for those who trust in him by bearing our every accusation at the cross. And for that, we don't need to mourn. We can rejoice. We can rejoice and realize that true joy comes through mourning and through repentance, and we find joy in forgiveness and in the love of the Father. And once we have seen our sin and wept and turned to Jesus, we can actually replace that, that old accusing voice with a new voice. Here are some of the things Scripture say to God's people. Scriptures say things like, I have loved you with an everlasting love, says God. Or Jesus says, where is the one who condemns you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Or take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would hear that voice this morning, that we would hear that through Jesus our sins have been forgiven and that we would be able to silence the accuser, that we would be able to hear not uh, the voice of condemnation, but that we would be able to hear your voice of forgiveness and love. Speak that deep into our souls, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.